We begin a new series today called Hell No, and I want to give you some of the titles coming up. Today we'll talk about where does hell come from? Is it in the Bible? Next week, God willing, we'll talk about if hell, and what we're talking about when we use the word hell, we're talking about eternal, a place, a future place of eternal conscious torment. If that's real, it depends almost entirely on this one thing. We'll talk about that. Number three, let's look at the scriptures on hell. What, what does it, you know, what do the scriptures say? We'll really get far more exhaustive than we do today. Number four, why is God so angry? Does he have to get even? Number five, is hell, a necess- is hell necessary in order to be able to share the gospel? And number six, universal hope, the hope of ultimate redemption. All right, well, here we go. To all of those who want to challenge religious and cultural norms, to all of those who will not be manipulated or held back by religious fears or theological dogma, to those who are willing to explore the best of church history, as well as the teachings of Jesus, biblical writers, and centuries of theologians and scholars, To those among us, sinner, saint, undecided, present-day thinkers, pastors, scholars, presbytery, and ordinary individuals pursuing truth, I offer these upcoming talks on the subject of hell, judgment, and the universal hope declared in the good news of Jesus Christ. This series of messages will be pulling from the work of some of history's as well as present day's great theologians, scholars, writers, and including the writings of the patristic fathers, such as Clement, Origen, Ignatius, and Gregory of Nicaea, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, English theologian N.T. Wright, and American theologian and pastors Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, a Canadian Canadian, um, on whom I am basing this series, a Canadian theologian as well as a Canadian author, pastor, so on and so forth, on which this series is based. And numerous comments that I share here today will be taken from his outstanding book. I'm going to present the cover of it here for you. Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. You cannot buy a finer book on the subject. And it goes into much, much more detail than we will have the ability to do during this series. And so I invite you, please, order that book if you would. Interesting side, I'm... Side note, I'm I'm presently enrolled in a 23-week study entitled Discussing Hebrews with Brad, Brian Zahn, Paul Young, author of The Shack, and Father John Baer, as well as several others. Brad and I exchanged text messages this week about the possibility of a study guide for his book, but one is not available. I promised him I would give him due credit. Where does hell come from? Is it in the Bible? Well, we're going to start by talking about the fact that 
Hell is defined differently, has been defined differently throughout the centuries. But most recently as this, a place of literal fire, a domain of the underworld ruled by Satan or the devil and his demons. Most recently, and I myself have often referred to it as this, separation from God, which is an interesting interesting belief system since Paul the Apostle said, and I quote, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor depth nor any other created thing. Now if hell is outside God, it was created. If hell is inside God, then it exists in him. But watch the language here, nothing, long, lit, uh, long list here, nothing, not, not death nor life, angels, principalities, things present or things to come, not height nor depth nor any other created thing, so if hell is outside of God, well then it must have been created, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So hell can't be separation from God. Traditionally, the Western evangelical idea of hell requires two elements. A place of conscious misery and torment. And secondly, that this condition will never end. It's eternal and will go on forever and forever. Now think of that. That's what you're saying if you believe in the present modern Western evangelical idea of eternal conscious torment. It is going to go on forever and ever and ever. Now, I I want you to think about the messaging here. Supposedly, the, quote, good news given to us by a God who loves you and the whole earth so much, like a father, that he sent Jesus to die for your sins, purchase your salvation, forgive you of those sins, and make it possible for you to go to heaven. He invites you to believe this. Not just mentally assent to it, but really, really believe this until it brings about moral change until it brings about moral change. But if you don't, if you don't believe that, or if you don't stick with it, this father of love will send you to a lake of fire where you will burn in conscious torment forever and ever and ever without end. Now, lest you think I'm being a a bit dramatic... (laughs) For effect, or even for sympathy for my personal position, listen to the following quote. This is from a book, uh, from a sermon, excuse me, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. 
He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Now stop, Jeff, just pause that slide. This is a man, Jonathan Edwards, preaching to his congregation. He's a revivalist preacher in the 1800s. Excuse me, 1700s. Can you imagine being in this congregation? Now, it did, it, it did get results. <laughs> He continued in the sermon, and I'll, I'll quote him here. This is not obviously the entire sermon, but it would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment, but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible mis misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, and rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless, merciless vengeance. And then when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. Wow. Jonathan Edwards, his sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What's interesting about this is this is one of the most famous sermons ever preached. It was preached on July 8th of 1741. It is associated with the Great Awakening, a Puritan classic. It captured the imagination of the American public and it became the de facto standard for content in revival meetings as well as textbook study for all seminary students who go to Bible college. And we wonder where the idea of a wrathful God who sends us to a place of torment, conscious torment forever, might come from. Because I'll show you today that it does not come from Scripture. But it is in our psyche. People need hell to believe in Jesus, to believe in the Bible. Numerous people, once I just simply made the statement, I no longer believe in an eternal conscious torment. Have stopped fellowshipping with me. Now, some of you won't be old enough to remember what I'm about to show you here, but many of you are. 
How many of you remember the little tracks by Chick Publications? The cartoon tracks, right? These things were powerful evangelistic tools, but they were filled with bad doctrine, especially regarding the wrath of God and hell. So, here's a quote from Jack Chick, the gentleman that was responsible for drawing all of the cartoons and for the messaging in all of these tracks. I quote, We need a Bible with a lot of hell in it. We need to know where we are not going. The whole purpose of evangelism is to save people from hell. We need a Bible that doesn't try to sanitize it with nicer sounding words that people don't understand. That forceful warning word, hell, is found in the King James Bible. (laughs) And so he actually did a track on that the King James Bible is the only valid translation and the only translation that is the Word of God. So all other translations don't qualify as being the Word of God or worthy of your reading. I'll show you a couple of images from his tracks. Here's one. This is called, um, I, I forget which track this is taken from, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, actually. But it says, beyond that great door was an ocean, an ocean of fire. And you can see there the flames and the demons carrying off a man. This is, this is hell 101. All right? And, and this is in lockstep. This is in lockstep with the sermon preached in the 1700s by Jonathan Edwards. Okay? Jack Chick, by the way, was a, a current... Uh, uh, cartoonist, and he passed away in 1992. Uh, all of these tracks, by the way, are still available and can be ordered and are still used to evangelize today. Here's another one. Uh, do we have a second image, or is it all included in the same? Okay, so, and I'm sorry that's so small. I would have thought, I, I should have thought better about making it full screen for you, but on the second image, Uh, What I wanted you to see in this second image is those are the angels of God bringing a sinner, quote, or somebody who has refused to believe to the edge of hell and throwing him in. (laughs) Isn't that a great picture of our loving Father? Even... Wikipedia says this in the definition of hell. In religion and folklore, hell is a location in the afterlife in which evil souls are subjected to punitive suffering, most often through torture as eternal punishment of death. Now, actually, there are three different ideas, three different postures and beliefs even in the Bible, about this place that we have called hell. For centuries, the idea of hell was not universally believed as one thing. There are three different ideas about what hell is, and all three of them are contained in Scripture. Let me give you the first one. Infernalism. 
This is the belief that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment for the unbeliever. The second one, annihilationism. This is teaching that the word perishing used in Scripture and, for instance, in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he, help me out, gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. All right? Annihilists believe that that word, to perish, is synonymous with death or eradication, rendering a full stop to the existence of the unredeemed. Some annihilationists believe that death itself is the end and that only those prepared for everlasting life will experience the resurrection or conditional immortality. Others believe that the wicked will be raised to life again, judged for their deeds, and then damned to the lake of fire where they will be completely consumed. So rather than being supernaturally sustained to endure endless torture... Both body and soul are destroyed, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. This is the second death, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, which vaporizes the whole person, Psalm 37, to ashes, Malachi chapter 4. The annihilationist sees justice done justly with spiritual capital punishment performed quickly and compassionately. Then there is a third take on the afterlife, and it's called universalism. So still others find shelter under the umbrella term universalism. Many modern universalists believe that hell doesn't exist and that everyone goes to heaven, whatever that happens to be. No particular faith is necessary, and not even the most heinous crimes can disqualify anyone from paradise. After all, in God's indiscriminate grace, he, quote, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 45. At the opposite end of universalist continuum, or of the universe, universe, universalist continuum, is the doctrine of ultimate redemption. Ancients like Origen of Alexandria, Gregory of Nicaea, are often labeled universalists, but they certainly believed in the existence of a lake of fire or a river of fire and insisted that many must pass through it. But for them, the cleansing fire would be curative chastisement that prepares one for God's presence. In fact, the fire might even be God's presence itself. Therefore, hell would eventually be empty and, or its refining purpose would come to an end. Now, there's three different takes on hell, and each one of those camps has scriptures for it. So, hell has never, all the way back to the patristic fathers, those who lived 50, 100, 150, 200, and 300 years right after Jesus walking on the earth, one of which had personal dealings with and conversations with John the Revelator, knew him personally, was a disciple of Polycarp, a direct disciple of John. Even amongst them, there was not complete lockstep agreement on what hell was. However, we do know this. It was not commonly taught nor believed by the early church fathers, 
nor Christians that hell was a place of eternal conscious torment. That is a newer take or understanding on hell. Brother Jeff, it, but if it's in the Bible, I believe it. And this is what my church has always believed. And this is what I grew up believing. You know what? Just because it's traditional or what you have always believed or what I was raised with doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it right. There's other things in the Bible that we presume to be right because they were, quote, commonly believed, traditional. And now... We're, a, we're aboard at that. We, we, we say, oh my goodness, I would, I would never believe that. I've moved away from that entirely. Let me give you one, slavery. Did you know slavery was justified by those who had slaves using Scripture? But today we would think of that as anathema. Oh my goodness. But in the day, they had Scripture for it. How about a woman's place in ministry? Oh, there's still, there's still plenty of people that don't believe that a woman is allowed in the pulpit or allowed to lead in a church there to keep quiet. They have their place, primarily homemakers and baby makers. I mean Christians, usually white evangelical men, but I digress. And nothing could be further from the truth of Scripture about God's blessing and God's anointing, God's hand upon Women and how he uses them today. How about dress code? <laughs> I grew up in a Pentecostal church. They had dress code. The pastor's wife came up to me before the week of my wedding to Nina and told me I needed to get my hair cut because it was down over my ears. <laughs> no beards. Ladies in long dresses, right? Oh, where is all of that today? The average Christian, the average church, I mean, there is a subset of Christians and generally speaking, a, a certain subset of, of denomination uh, that believes those kind of things, but it's largely gone by the wayside. Well, so how do we explain that? Because it used to be we had scripture on all that. How about believing that the Bible is necessary? Believing the Bible and everything in it is necessary for you to be saved. We don't believe that. We know there's lots of questions about the Bible. And that doesn't mean you can't know God and have a relationship with him. How about divorce? Oh, listen, when, when Nina and I were growing up and for the first couple of decades of our Christian life, divorce was like the unpardonable sin. You did not get a divorce. And now... <laughs> You'd be hard-pressed to find any major leader in ministry in the pulpit who hasn't been remarried. I mean big-time leaders. Well, how does that work since it used to be a sin? Brian Zahn, and I will be using one of his books, he wrote a response to Jonathan Edwards. And came out with a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Isn't that great? So Jonathan Edward teaches, uh, teaches, preaches a sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, Brian Zahn wrote a whole book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. He said, 
This whole idea of eternal conscious torment is evangelism by terror, conversion by coercion. I agree. I think it's very problematic to believe, to preach, to teach, to hold to the idea of an eternal conscious torment. Now, here's something that's interesting. In my study and in reading after these various resources, historical as well as present day, it's curious. We have found that hell is missing from the early church and even more modern Bible translations. Missing. George Saras, author, speaker, Christian leader, said this regarding eternal conscious torment. Hell was not in the teaching of the early church. What the early church believed is important because they were the closest to Jesus and the apostles. They read the New Testament in their native tongue, and they had the greatest impact on the surrounding culture of any time in history. They established the faith that we now profess. They were the ones who wrote the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and creeds that explained the doctrines of the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. And they were the ones who set up or put together the 27 books that we now call the New Testament. During the first 500 years after Christ, the dominant view within the leadership and laity of the church was that God will ultimately restore all of his creation. David Bentley Hart, Eastern Orthodox theologian and patristic scholar, notes that the early church fathers who knew ancient Koine Greek far better than do most moderns, simply didn't translate the Greek words for the phrase meaning eternal punishment to be applied to the duration or the nature of hell as in Matthew chapter 25 verse 46. Hart observes that the patristic theologians as diverse as Origen, Gregory of Nicaea, and Isaac of Nineveh saw in in the phrase Ionis Colossus, typically translated as eternal punishment, but possibly to read as, get this, correction for a long period or for an age or even in the age to come. No cause to conclude that hell was anything but a temporary process of spiritual purification. So even, even if we want to continue to embrace a fire, a place called hell where there's punishment, it is meant as to be and designed to be temporary and redemptive. It will be a purging, not eternal conscious torment. Interesting, by the way, interesting, Paul considered the theologian of the Paul considered to be the theologian of the New Testament never used the word hell in any of his writings. He used the term purging fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 through 15 to describe after death but never the word hell. John the disciple closest to the heart of Jesus never used the word hell in his gospel. And are you aware that the book of Acts never mentions the word hell 
except to speak of Jesus' liberation from it, no part of the Christian message established by the church in the book of Acts ever mentions hell. Now those are three New Testament sources of history and the gospel and Paul, of course, the theologian of the New Testament who never mentioned the word hell. In fact, there's different terms for our word that we have substituted or that got substituted and inserted into the Bible, particularly into the King James translation. There's several different words. And hell is missing from the Hebrew and the Greek. So different Hebrew and Greek words are translated as hell in certain early English language Bibles, namely King James. For instance, Sheol, that's in the Hebrew Bible. And Hades, the comparable Greek, is in the New Testament. So Sheol and Hades are the same word. One is Hebrew, one is Greek. Many modern versions, such as the New International Version, translate Sheol as simply grave and simply transliterate Hades. It is generally agreed that both Sheol and Hades do not typically refer to a place of eternal punishment, but to simply the grave, the temporary abode of the dead, the underworld. And then we have Gehenna. Whenever you see Jesus using the word hell, According to the King James translation, it is the Greek word Gehenna. And it describes a place where both soul and body could be destroyed. Of course, according to Matthew chapter 10, that's the famous passage that people refer to to say Jesus taught hell. Actually, he didn't. He used the word Gehenna. And it does mean unquenchable fire, Mark chapter 9, verse 43. But it is not translated the word hell. It has nothing to do with the afterlife or eternal conscious torment. In fact, Gehenna was a physical location outside the city walls where they burned garbage and where lepers and outcasts were sent, hence the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And so Brad Jerzak in his book has three specific chapters, three chapters dedicated to, number one, Gehenna, a whole chapter just on Gehenna. Number two, the lake of fire, there's one, a whole chapter on the lake of fire. And number three, descriptions for hell. I found this interesting. Those words in the New Testament for hell, I have on a chart right here. It's on the screen, and I would be happy to make this available to you if you want to write me for the notes text at the number that we've given you for texting or write to me at my email address and I'll send you this chart of every instance, every instance in the Bible where Sheol, Hades, and Gehenna are used. Something also that I mentioned, hell is dropping out of the Bible. Hell's, we're having a hard time finding the word hell now in the Bible in modern translations. And here's another chart. Here's all the Bible translations that don't use the word hell after the first several, such as the King James translation. Could we put that up? So notice the King James translation uses it 54 times. 
By the time we get to the New King James, James translation, it uses it only 32 times, almost half as many. By the time we get to the New International Version, it only uses it 13 times. New American Standard or Holman Christian, 11 times. Uh, 12, 13, 12, 13, so on and so forth. When we get to many of the modern, very accurate translations that are based on new discovered text, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and improved methods of interpreting original languages, the word hell is not even found in the Bible. And I'm, I'm talking about... Um, oh good, it's a little small for me to read there, but I'm talking about the New Testament in Greek, Young's Literal Translation, 20th century New Testament, Rotherham's New Testament, thought to be one of the most accurate translations of the New Testament ever written. Weymouth's New Testament, the people's new covenant, New Testament of our Lord and Savior, so on and so forth. It goes, I'll send you this chart as well if, you, if you'd like to write for it. I want to end today with a very simple analogy, and that's the justice system, even ours here in America. Would you think through this for just a minute with me, the justice system? When somebody commits a crime, has an infraction that warrants being put away, their freedom removed, and they go to jail or to prison, everybody involved in the justice system will tell you that the goal of that, the goal of putting somebody in prison, the goal of taking away somebody's freedom is reconciliation. To put them through a procedure where they can be forgiven, where they can make restitution, and they can be free again. Now, that's interesting. Our own justice system has as a goal that we would help these people and reintroduce them to society. And yet, we have a loving creator of the universe, our Father God, who at the end of life, if you haven't believed right, if you haven't accepted things right, if you die, quote, a sinner, he is going to take you, and instead of any kind of system of justice, where you go through a process of purging and getting things right and be reinstituted and have eternal life with the Father, no, no, he's going to take you and he's going to put you in eternal conscious torment that lasts forever and ever and ever without end. That's our loving Heavenly Father, Creator, God, according to some. Think about it. Brad Jerzak says, and I quote, the stubborn fact is that Scripture is richly poly polyphonic, excuse me, polyphonic. What's that mean? 
a composition employing two or more simultaneously but relatively independent melodic lines. So in music, for instance, something can be, a score written can be polyphonic. Polyphonic. (laughs) It can have two diverse, you know, compositions and lines of music or melodic lines going on at the same time. And it actually brings beauty to it. And so Brad says on the topic of hell and judgment, it's very polyphonic. If by design. Thus, if we become dogmatic about any one position, we reduce ourselves to reading selectively or doing interpretive violence to those verses that don't fit our chosen view. Dear ones, I submit to you that going to heaven or going to hell is not the fabric or composition of the gospel. The good news that we preach isn't about us leaving to go somewhere. Rather, it's about our loving Father coming to live with us. Emmanuel, God with us.